Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Eric Sklar. He is CEO of Fume Brands, which is a premium cannabis brand out of Napa Valley in California. We're going to talk to him about the cannabis space. We're going to talk with him about his history in Napa Valley and working in wine and then in cannabis. We're going to learn a little bit about that transition. We're going to learn about from a business point of view uh, and how they're approaching the market sort of strategy. Really fascinated about the premium side of this market. I think that as the market grows, you know, we're looking at a lot of a lot of people coming into market, a lot of product being put into the market. And I think this premium side has some really interesting dynamics and, and excited to have this conversation and, and learn really what it takes to create a premium cannabis brand. So with that, Eric, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Glad, great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about kind of background and history. I'm always curious how people get into cannabis or how they get into cannabis from a business point of view. And I know you've got a long history in the area and dealing originally with grapes and wine. So I'm kind of curious about that history, that legacy, and then how cannabis came into that and how you're kind of weaving those together or how you're leveraging that experience to create a premium cannabis brand. So, so tell us a story. 
Well, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur, but I also have a background in public policy. I was an elected official here in Napa Valley, a city council member. I'm currently president of the California Fish and Game Commission, where we set the wildlife rules for the state. But as a serial entrepreneur, I actually started out in the restaurant business in Washington, D.C., with a restaurant chain I started in my 20s called Burrito Brothers. Sold that in 99. Yeah. Yeah, And came back to Napa, where my family had had a vineyard for almost 40 years now, 40 years last summer, actually, and settled in Napa Valley to raise our kids here 20 years ago. We've now done raising our kids. uh, But in the meantime, (laughs) I I started a winery called Alpha Omega in uh, 2005. With the idea being that you know Napa itself is this premium brand, and that wine in Napa is premium, but that it's really difficult for wineries, new wineries, to get any traction with distributors. I don't know. Twenty-five years ago, there were a ten thousand distributors around the country, yeah. and now there's like three thousand. But four or five companies dominate the distribution. They used to help you build your brands. Now they just take orders. So you have to find a way to build your brand. Well, the way I did it with the wine business was open a winery tasting room on Highway 29 where there are already 5 million customers coming every mm-hmm. year. Yep. So it's a buying wine, right? And then I would ship it to them directly. So I changed the model a little bit of the way wineries have been operating before. We were one of the first to do that because uh, at, right around that same time, the Supreme Court told states they had to allow direct shipping of wine. They couldn't block it. Sure. So it opened up the whole possibility of this direct-to-consumer wine business. So that business went really, really well. In 2013, I exited just as the possibility of Prop 64 passing in California, the the law that allowed cannabis to be recreationally legal, was kind of a sparkle in the eyes of the proponents. Ah. Um, And a younger friend of mine, I'm I'm in my late 50s now, so I was in my early 50s then or mid 50s. -hmm. A younger friend of mine who has a great winery called One Hope Winery in Napa Valley and I were talking about cannabis and what was going to happen with it and agreed that when it became legal, Napa is a natural place to grow cannabis sure. and, and we're among the best branders of a similar product, right? It's an agricultural product oh. that transform that's highly regulated that inebriates. We're not focused on the medical side, although there are some medical benefits to red wine, right? Mm-hmm. And there's medical, clearly medical benefits to cannabis. We said we're going to stay on the recreational side and uh, and do what we do best, which is create premium brands of the best agriculturally cultivated product we possibly can or anybody can. So in 13, we started whiteboarding it and we developed a business plan and said, okay, as soon as it's legal in California, we're off to the races. And of course, in uh, in 2016, Prop 64 passed. We started finalizing the business plan. And then later the next year, when, when it became actually became legal, yep. we launched and we started raising money and we had the plan of creating a number of brands that are Napa-based that uh, are premium brands. Now, Things don't always go quickly as or smoothly as you hope in the <laughs> cannabis, right? Yeah. And the cannabis business is especially that way. And in Napa, the powers that be have resisted the right to cultivate outdoor in Napa Valley. The super board of supervisors have said no, 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 no. So we're looking at putting it on the ballot either in November if we can get that done or in two years to get the people to say, yes, we want to cultivate here. We're confident that'll happen. Prop 64 passed in uh, Napa at a higher rate than it did over the state as a whole. So there's a broad support for cannabis. And we sure. uh, we're confident that in the next couple of years, we'll be able to grow there. But we had to do something in the meantime. So we uh, we went to uh, the county just north of us, which is called Lake County. Uh-huh. And uh, Lake County welcomed us with open arms. And we've been cultivating in Lake County now for two years. We had our second crop in November and we'll have another crop this year. We um, have a delivery service launch that delivers to all of the North Bay of San Francisco Bay Area, which is terrific and is doing real well. And last July, we launched our first brand, which is Lake Grade. Eventually, there'll be a Napa grade and a Mendocino grade and a Montauk grade and a South Beach grade. As people, we find cultivators around the country that can grow good stuff. We will have locally based brands for each of those areas. And then middle this year, we'll launch Fume, which is our premium brand with Lake County Cannabis. And then we hope to launch Fume Napa 
by early next year with indoor cultivated cannabis, and then finally outdoor cultivated cannabis when we finally get that approved. Interesting. So I'm kind of curious, given you know you've got a kind of a background in, in politics and policy. You know what what is really the dynamic? I mean, why why the resistance? What have you kind of seen as you've worked with you know local government to you know figure out how to get get these programs in place to actually you know cultivate in Napa? Like what what is the resistance? What are the concerns? How have you navigated that? I guess how has your experience knowing kind of the process and knowing government and knowing policy helped you kind of guide this? Yeah, you know uh, this is a highly regulated industry from top to bottom, whether it's the cultivation side, the manufacturing, the distribution, the sales. And, you know, California had Prop 64 passed, but it was still left to the state to write a lot of regulations on how it actually got carried out. So we played a really big role at the state level in helping them improve and perfect the regulations as they've written them and revise them. That's a massive effort. We work with our partner Ease, the delivery company, extensively on Sacramento lobbying and and, and work on the regulations. And then, you know, in, in in the cities and county where we operate, Lake County and the city of Clearly, like we spent a lot of time with them, handholding, uh, partnering, advising, trying to get the regulations in those places uh, to be as, as sensible as they can. We want it to be a properly regulated business, but uh, you know, at the same time, you don't want to have it overregulated to the point where it's it's too difficult to run your business. And yeah. some have argued that in California right now, that's the case that the regulations are too onerous. And I think the state has realized that, the governor has realized that, and they're proposing more flexible regulations uh, in the coming months. And then the cities we're operating now and county, as we evolve there and show them how we operate as, as professional, clean, green businesses, creating lots of great jobs and providing tax revenue, they seem very willing to work with us to make things run more smoothly by, by you know, fine-tuning the regulations, not throwing them out, but fine-tuning them. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious what any particular parts of the regulations that have been, I don't know, kind of most debated or, or most scrutinized in terms of, you know, balancing this proper regulation for, you know, business and kind of health and safety versus making sure that we've got a viable market from a cannabis point of view that we're not over-regulating the market. Anything in there that's particularly of note? Yeah, I guess there's three things. So one is taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, California imposed taxes that are just way too high. And so it makes it more attractive to a lot of buyers to go to the illegal market, yeah. which is bad on a whole level, a bunch of levels, whether yeah. it's from safety, product safety, and so and, and collecting taxes and revenue and, and keeping it out of the hands of kids. So there's taxes. Then there is the the general regulation of, of reporting. It's a very complex system by which you've got to report every leaf of cannabis that you grow and as it moves through the system. So they need to to make that less onerous because we're spending a huge amount of time and money just complying with the, the yeah. track and trace system. And then finally, I guess there would be on uh, the fine tuning on security measures, things like that, where they, they went a little overboard at first and that adds enormous costs. So we're trying to work with them on, on, on that as well. well. I guess a fourth one is is on delivery. You know, in California, they put a, a $5,000 case limit on how much cannabis you could put in a delivery car. Well, for a delivery system like ours with ease, where it's dynamic delivery, where the orders actually come to the driver in the car, much like an Uber driver gets their uh, new mm, ride, yeah. they need to be a little more flexible on delivery, which they didn't really understand at first, so that we can be really efficient and green in doing that and not have to go back to the depot as often. Yeah, so because you're actually literally carrying your inventory with you and then just dispensing it on, you know, as, as people place orders, you're not picking up a package and sending a package, it's you're actually, you know, move, moving the inventory with you. Exactly. And, you know, at first there was a lack of understanding of how that actually worked and security, but there's been no safety issue. Our cars are unmarked. 
you know, they pack yeah. the individual pack for, an, for uh, an order away from where they're delivering. In order to get a delivery, you've got to give your driver's license and a credit card number. So, you know, you, nobody's holding people up as they come to their house because uh, even criminals aren't that dumb. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. And I'm curious, like, given the background you have in in wine, what give me sort of a compare and contrast, you know, similarities, differences. You know, on one hand, you can look at it and say, hey, it's, you know, it's a it's an agricultural product. It's regulated. It, you know, it, it's a, a recreational product, you know, it should be very similar. Where have you noticed that you can borrow a lot of the kind of learning and the models and, and where can you not? What's what similarities and differences between the two? It's a great question, a really good question. It's one we, we ask ourselves daily because yeah. we're figuring out as we go, right? We're not, there's no playbook for this particular product this way. The similarities are is that it's a product that inebriates you, that is an agricultural product that has incredible aromas and flavors that, that we want to emphasize. And so in that sense, we're talking to customers about it often the same way. One of the big differences, though, is, is that with alcohol, it's very linear. The, the effect of the alcohol on a person is based on your body weight and, and how much you consume of alcohol. And obviously, if it's, it, it, you have to adjust if it's a, the, by the percentage in the drink you're drinking. If it's beer, obviously, the, percent, the amount of alcohol you get is smaller per cup. But you can figure out exactly what the quantity is. The same with, you know, it goes up with wine and then liquor. So it's linear and affects people the same, roughly the same uh, for each individual. They know that if they have one glass of wine, it's going to have this effect. If they have two, it's going to have this effect after they learn their own body and, and the linear effect. Cannabis is much more variable in terms of both the quantity and any, any given amount of cannabis, the type of form factor you're taking it in, and whether it's edible or smoking it or, you know, beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it affects individuals drastically differently for the same exact amount of the same product. So educating people about how to learn what their tolerance is, what what works with them, and how your product in particular will affect them is very different than wine. Additionally, cannabis has so many more effects and uses than wine. Wine pretty much, you know, it gives you a buzz. It is true that uh, resveratrol in red wine has some proven health effects, which is great, but that you don't feel that. That's a long-term thing that you yeah. t- have by taking it over a long period of time. Here, you know, it can help with inflammation. It can help with headaches. It can help with body aches and pains. It can help with sleeplessness. It can help with anxiety and depression. That's a far cry from alcohol. Alcohol actually is a depressant. And so helping people understand that and figure out how to use it for even though it's recreational, they still want to see some of those benefits. So it's infinitely more complex, I think, in, in how you talk about your product and how you teach people about your product than wine, even though there's the similarities of it's a wonderful recreational lubricant or can be. Yeah. And how does that impact the branding strategy? Because I, I imagine that, you know, given all the different kind of potential effects and kind of the facets of the product itself and who you're trying to target and, and what you're trying to accentuate and play up or play down, how do you approach the kind of the branding strategy? strategy given all those different options? Well, ultimately, we'd love to have tasting rooms where we can teach people in, in person, mm. right? It's, it's difficult to do that right now. On-site consumption is, is relatively limited in here in Napa. It's not allowed at all yet. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to be changing. Sonoma's looking at allowing farmers to have tasting rooms to, just like wineries do and wine growers do. So in-person is the best. I think after that, it becomes you know, you know, videos, YouTube videos, and then your website as a, as a focal point to try to educate people and then just really engaging with them in a way that some other industries do, but wine hasn't exactly before. Yeah. And talk to me. I mean, you mentioned a couple different locations and growers. How are you kind of approaching the 
kind of the operational process of kind of the brand building and, and, you know, creating the end product versus your kind of the cultivation side and the supply side? Are you, are these, are you owning the cultivation side? Are you partnering with folks who are cultivators to grow product for you? How does that business model work for you? It's actually a little bit of both. We have our own cultivation where we're cultivating our own strains and perfecting them for our products. And then we're in the process of signing our first contract with a contract grower. This year, we're buying from a few people just on the spot market in, in Lake County, people we know really well, but we're just buying at the end of the season. This coming year, we're actually going to contract with growers to grow our strains our way. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of both, which is not dissimilar at all from the wine model. At Alpha Omega, we only grew about 5% of the grapes when I was running it. Um, we bought from great growers all over Napa Valley who mostly grow and don't make their own wine. And we yeah. see a very similar model in cannabis. We think it's a it's a natural way to do it because there's folks who are great farmers but aren't branders. But branders yeah. need farmers and because you want to talk about who grew it and how they grew it. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I've seen the, um, you know, this business model kind of playing out different ways the last couple of years of, you know, people that are trying to be fully integrated, you know, everything from seed to the actual, you know, the branding and selling side of it, people that are kind of taking various segments of that chain and becoming experts in it. How do you see this market playing out? You mentioned you think that's, that is a certainly a, a strategy that a lot of people are looking at, but do you see this as a general trend in the cannabis market that you're going to see experts in various parts of, you know, cultivating and processing and, you know, packaging and actually branding around this? What, how do you see this evolving? Yeah, I think a lot of people like our company went into this vertically initially because they were very afraid the supply chain wouldn't be reliable and yeah. consistent. And I think that's proven out that in these early days, the supply chain isn't great, especially because you can't ship across state lines, right? So you're limited yeah. to what you can get in your state from packaging, you know, white label packaging and so on. So I think it's starting out very vertical. There are a lot of just people, uh, folks out there just growing and they're looking for buyers. And I think they found a bit of a challenge, but I think the direction we'll be going in is specialization. Growers will grow, manufacturers will manufacture and, and retailers and branders will sell. But I think that that's a, a, a long, slow process. And, and I think that I mean, I would say a 10-year process, probably nationwide, because until we go federally legal in something like three to five years is the prediction, vertical, I mean, uh, specialization will, will not be fully possible. Once we have a, a nationwide and global market, I think you'll find lots of people who are just farmers and other folks who, who con do contract manufacturing and other folks who do distribution and other folks who create brands. And, and, and we're looking forward to that because, frankly, it's really difficult being vertically integrated in yeah. any business. It's, yeah. just, it's just really hard because you're doing dissimilar businesses and you and you may be better at some than others but in any case you're distracted as you're as you're trying to do so many things at once but for all of us i think there was no choice early on yeah no i agree you mentioned the federal legalization i mean i've worked with many companies now and kind of doing strategic planning around this and, and i'm curious on your take i mean even if we get you know a descheduled move regulate you know it comes off the schedule and now sort of enables the possibility of interstate transportation and commerce i mean people have or states have spent so much money setting up these, you know, state level economies. I mean, what's your take on how states are going to respond to this? Are they just going to open up their doors? Or are they going to put certain kind of protections or taxations in place for in-state versus out-of-state cannabis? Like, how do you see this playing out? Even if we get a federal legalization, how do you see that market developing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, we, we have so we can look to wine, right, where there's federal legalization of end of prohibition, but states had a lot of control. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we're going to see something like. But the good news is the Granholm decision, which says, you know, states have to treat out-of-state products the same as they treat their in-state products, will provide some protection for interstate commerce. So therefore, uh, you know, a state couldn't say we're going to we're going to not tax our local growers, but we're going to tax all cannabis coming in. Mm -hmm. That won't fly. And so 
there will be just separate regulations in terms of how retail is sold. Some states may have state cannabis stores like liquor yeah. stores, right? Like Pennsylvania yeah. continues to it. That's would be a real shame because that's a, a lousy way to do it. The state is not very good at on luxury wines, on, on picking wines and selling wines. I, I think that's a, a terrible disservice to consumers. So hopefully it won't be that bad, but there is going to be dissimilar laws across state lines um, without question. The question is how much the federal government would say will say you have to be consistent on A, B, and C. So, for instance, they could say, um, you know, you have to allow uh, retail stores, you have to allow mm-hmm. out-of-state distributors, you can't just have in-state distributors franchise laws like liquor. We'll see. I, it's hard to say how it's going to go. Yeah. If you look, I don't know how familiar you are with the Canadian market, but that, you know, similar kind of thing where you have federal legislation, but then provinces kind of decide how they're going to implement. And I mean, it's the same as their liquor situation. You know, some provinces control the the sales, some provinces allow for, you know, independent dispensers or independent, you know, retail locations. Is there any lessons to be learned based on what you know of the Canadian market and how that's played out? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think it shows that provincial control or state control in our case not ideal. But um, I, I don't, I don't think I, I don't see any way around it because yeah. of we're a divided country. You know, the, the Congress is divided, and I think that what they'll do is they'll punt and let the states take a lot of control over it. And so it's going to be. You know, it's just going to be irregular. But, you know, the good news for for our company, Fume, is that we're based in California, which is the largest market in the world Mm -hmm. right now. And and will continue to be as long as states are are, have individual rules. And, you know, so it's good for us that we're in a big market and and we we want to go national as soon as we can. There are some efforts right now to allow interstate commerce between states that have legalized it if they're contiguous um, or or if they're not contiguous, the the products have to stay on a train. You know, they have to be shipped by train. Yes, locked down between states. That's really interesting. We think that that might be the first step where there's interstate commerce, states can get get together and agree on on, on PACs. Uh, there's some northeastern states that are doing that right now where they're, they want to pass similar laws and allow interstate commerce. So I, I think there'll be some sort of hybrid. It won't be quite as... Uh, as restrictive, hopefully on, on distribution, because that's where, where the where the yeah. where the liquor industry is really messed up, right? The distributors have way too much power. Yeah, and so we want we want to prevent that for sure. Yeah. But uh, there's going to be some irregularity across state state operations for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. And tell me about kind of the the premium segment of this market. What, from your point of view, what defines a premium product? How you know how does it get classified? How, why you know why operate in that space? You know, it's a fascinating one. So I'm curious to kind of tell me a little bit. About about what defines a premium brand in the cannabis market? Like, what are its qualities? Is it about price point? Is it about the nature of the product? And then, you know, strategically, why choose that part of the market to focus on, you know, in terms of your business? Let me answer that in reverse order. We know premium products, right? We we sell $250 bottle Cabernet. We know that market, those customers, what they're looking for. So that's why we're doing it is because it's our expertise. There's other folks who will make uh, the the gallo of cannabis, right? And just Mm -hmm. huge volume grown in the Central Valley of California. And by the way, let's come back in a second to California and and why California is going to be the biggest player in growing. But here's what I think we think and and we're arguing makes the difference on premium cannabis. Like any other plant, you can grow it mass or you can grow it custom, right? And so we're growing plants where we separate them far from each other. They grow into very big trees with enormous, beautiful, rich buds. We grow for aroma and flavor and the best high possible, not the highest volume. So it's almost always about premium growing when it's an agricultural product versus mass growing. And so that's the first thing. You grow for the highest quality possible, which costs more money. Mm -hmm. Um, You're you're hand tending each plant carefully. You're hand harvesting and hand trimming each bud carefully. You're taking the very best buds and you're putting them in your product. 
buds and parts of the plant that aren't as good, you're bulking out, which is what wineries do all the time. They take 20 or 30 percent of the wine they make and they sell it on the bulk market to folks who are just pouring it into big batches of wine. Sure. So we're doing that same thing. That's on the growing side. Then on the marketing, the packaging side, you're doing small quantities of super high quality. You're doing uh, organic hemp rolling papers on your pre-rolls. You're testing, you know, to the highest level of, uh, to make sure the THC and the and the terpenes remain in, right? You're drying in a very careful way before you and curing to make sure that terpenes are maintained. Um, and then you're sorting and you're and you're discarding and, and selling off as bulk the stuff that's not as good as as is required for your product. And then there's the whole branding and and, and how you market it, where you yeah. sell it, how you sell it, how you package it. You know, Tiffany, Hermes, Louis Vuitton, they know how to sell their package and sell their product in a way that is not the same as Target. Yeah. And how do you do that? I mean, with the kind of the retail dispensary kind of set up the way it is, how do you make sure that the brand you've got sort of the real consistency for the end user, not only in the product, like what's inside the package, but the package and the actual retail display? And how do you make that happen, given given kind of the diversity of retail sort of dispensary experiences that we have right now? Well, two things. One is ideally you sell most of your product direct to consumers, again, and then eventually from a tasting room where they're experiencing it firsthand with you introducing them to your product and teaching them. So that's ideal. Mm-hmm. And we'll have that eventually extensively. And I think in Napa and Sonoma in particular, your website is a big part of it and how you market and, and present yourself there. And then at dispensaries, it's picking your dispensaries carefully, not going to every dispensary, going to the apothecariums mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and the harvest of the world, the ones that are the the super high end, you know, that, that, that understand how to sell high end premium product face to face. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about the, um, you know, the product itself and the terpenes and the, you know, the maintaining the, the quality of product. I've seen that because we're dealing with an organic product, right? We're dealing with an agricultural product that has organics that have shelf lives that have that are susceptible to environmental conditions. How have you kind of ensured or, you know, managed to keep sort of the integrity of the product through the process all the way from, you know, when when you, you know, when it's coming off the plant to when it's actually, you know, being used by a consumer? What's that? How do you maintain the quality of the product over that time period? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, it's funny, there's a saying in in winemaking that that 90% of the quality of wine happens in the vineyard. I would say that with cannabis, at least 50% of the long-term quality of the product occurs during curing and drying. If you don't grow great plants and you don't grow great wine grapes, you know, you're not going to have a good product. That, that's a given. Yeah. Wine, winemaking, a lot of people say is only 10% of the process. And it's easy to keep the terpenes and aromas in that because you're keeping it in tanks. You're keeping the barrels sealed yeah. so that those stay in. It's the opposite here. You need to dry the product and get the moisture out. So how you do that, how you dry it and cure it to maintain terpene profile is really critical. So there's a real skill set in that for any anybody who wants to have really high quality premium product and then packaging it the right way so that it's maintained. Those are the two steps that will uh, ensure that uh, what was a premium product when it got uh, trimmed off the plant, when it got harvested, remains so. Yeah. I'm curious what have been some of the challenges as you've kind of established the business and, and you know, grown the operations. Where do you see the kind of limits in the cannabis space right now in terms of, you know, just bottlenecks or, or constraints that are holding the business and the industry back? Yeah, I think distribution is a big part of the problem. There aren't, you know, there aren't a lot of distributors who are working well. And also, there's a problem in that because of all the taxation, all the regulation, because uh, there's so many businesses out there that are trying to figure out how to make this work. There's been a lot of issues with bis- businesses not being able to pay their bills. And so that messes up the supply chain, right? Mm, if the yeah. if the dispensary is not paying the brand and the, the brand's not paying the grower, things get jammed up. And that's a real problem in California right now that, you know, certainly is and was exacerbated by the the coronavirus, right? Yeah. Problem that, that's added that added to it. Yeah. But 
we'll see how this all shakes out. I think that in the end, a lot of businesses that were in business in January of 2020 will not be in, are not in business anymore, will not be in business by the end of 2020. Yeah. But the ones that survive will be stronger, right? They'll have made it through the tough times, both of the, the new industry and and the outcomes, of the, uh, both financial and, and social, of the, of the coronavirus crisis. Yeah. The businesses that are, I predict the businesses that are around at the end of 2020 will be infinitely stronger and ready to really take this to the next level. And I'm excited about that possibility. And, and, and I'm optimistic that Fume will be one of those such companies. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an exciting time. And we're dealing we're dealing with all the COVID stuff right now. And we'll see how it kind of not only affects cannabis, but I think every industry in, in the world right now. But it's, yeah, I think there'll be a, those that make it through will come back stronger. And, you know, as things recover, uh, you'll see a, a, a new wave of growth around the, around the industry. Anything else that you're looking at strategically, you know, kind of um, whether it's, uh, you know, the U.S. market, the international market, uh, things that you really think are going to shape cannabis over the, over the coming years? Well, what's interesting is the, um, is the hemp, CBD hemp market, right? Mm. It's really interesting. A lot of people flooded into it. We didn't yet, but we're looking at doing that because we think that creating a brand that's a hemp CBD brand that can go national now yeah. rather than waiting, you know, till three or four or five years from now is a wonderful way to build a brand that's national in scope. And then, you know, people already know the name and the, and, and, and the, and the trade dress. So then we introduce THC products nationwide later, but we'll be ahead of the game. So we're looking at that. That's an exciting possibility. You know, we're, we're piecing it together right now. The biggest problem with that is interesting is that there's some great hemp growers out there, but they're really having trouble staying under the 0.3% yeah. number. And, and they have to destroy their product once they harvest if it's not 0.3%. Yeah. So we're finding, finding really, really good premium growers who are consistently under 0.3%. So that's the that's the next big challenge. And there's some talk at the federal level of raising that arbitrary number to 1%, which is much more practical. Yeah, I've heard a lot of horror stories of people having to destroy vast crops versus vast sums of money because, yeah, they didn't hit that 0.3%. And it's tough. You're dealing with an agricultural product, right? So you can't, you don't really know until you finish the growing season and, and you test it. And it can often not, not meet that threshold. Eric, this has been great. If people want to find out more about you, about Fume, what's the best way to get that information? Go to either Fume Brands online or you can go to uh, to Lake Grade as well. We have we have websites for both, and uh, we encourage you to go there. We're not selling on. We were selling a little bit online, but really, um, the best way in California to get our product is to order delivery through Ease. Great. I will make sure that the links are in the show notes so people can click through and get that. Eric, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time today and telling us a little bit about the business. And um, I've, I always enjoy talking with growers and people that are doing interesting work. Uh, and so this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.